all people are not here because people they, they give earlier, then people who come late feel guilty. Yes. So we yes. them. We need to produce the guilt. <laughs>
especially, I think, a wonderful piece which I already mentioned in Moscow of intervention apropos of that proto-fascist, whatever painter who got nationalist. Yeah, who got, uh, who got the Kandinsky Prize, which I think probably Kandinsky should be turning in his <laughs> So again, I, and I really feel at home here, although I must say that yesterday evening when we had a debate, you know, I saw there is factional, a little bit of factional struggle in your group. You need more democratic centralism. Friendly criticism. So let me show. Just second point before I begin properly, as Naman Dola already said in Moscow, I would like to repeat it here. We both have the fear that somehow you expect from us somehow to give you a guide, you know, to tell you precisely, stop the lot, you know, what to do. Well, as Mladen said, from two poor Slovene intellectuals, you will not get it, I think. So don't expect what you cannot get. But the title of my talk, Welcome to the Desert of Post-Ideology, I mean it quite seriously, because as you probably know, one of the popular liberal commonplaces is that in 1990, with the fall of Soviet Empire and so on, a certain epoch went to the end. Many people even claimed that it was kind of a ironic historical coincidence that it fell down, okay, 89, exactly 200 years after the French Revolution. Now that, that epoch which began with Jacobins, uh, Jacobins, came to an end and with it the end of ideology. Ideology is then defined as a, uh, you know, it's a, a brutal, violent attempt to enforce reality, to impose on it some abstract intellectual preconceptions. So the idea is we got rid of that. Today we live in a rational world where instead of imposing on each other our totalitarian visions, we do pragmatically negotiate, allow each other his, her, their way of life and so on and so on. Of course, I oppose it. I think that not only was 89 not a period of the end, sorry, of utopias, but that the true utopia were the 90s. You know, the let's call it Fukuyama's <laughs> utopia, where for a brief moment it seemed that, that uh, we found, we, humanity, the formula. And remember, this is, I think, the best definition, formal definition, of utopia. Utopians are usually accused of believing in human goodness or whatever. No, no. Utopians are more crazy than utopians. They think they found a formula, you know. A true utopian is the one who says, I found the mechanism. So we, we just have to apply this mechanism and 
everything will flourish. And uh, these mechanisms can also be very uh, brutal, imply human evil and so on. Like that's for me the market utopia. That if you impose market on the right way, the very human egotism, the fact that every, everyone will work for himself, will contribute to common good and so on and so on. Now, I met two, three times uh, Fukuyama. And I'll tell you something surprising. He is not an idiot. He is one of these conservatives with whom I like to speak. You know why? Already Marx said, apropos Balzac, that uh, a true radical leftist revolutionary can learn much more from honest conservatives than from liberals. Because liberals, reactionaries, and also naive leftists, they think, like, we have a plan, things will be better, and so on and so on. There is progress. But honest cons conservatives usually are, again, honest enough just to describe a deadlock, you know? They say, no, we see a deadlock, there is no easy way out. And this is now, the last time I spoke with him, Fukuyama's position, he told me he no longer believes in the end of history. He agrees partially with me. Okay, I must tell you the story, it's wonderful. I was with him on a round table already 10 years ago, just BBC one hour radio on TV, I'm not hosting talk show on the books, and my book was the book of Lenin, no? Uh, which is translated here, the short one. And he told me something crazy. He told me, you have so many nice analyses, but why Lenin? Like, erase Lenin and I buy everything else. You know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is like, you want to have all the divine miracles, but the divine, you know, deny God, because God is nothing God. Seriously. And he told me that he sees two reasons, at least for the end of Fukuyama Utopia. The first one is biogenetics. You remember, he wrote a book on post-human future, whatever. He's honest enough here. He thinks that with biogenetics, which opens up terrifying perspectives, potentially terrifying, I'm not this pessimist, but perspectives of direct regulation of our even psychic properties, that this liberal model simply is not strong enough, that we will need much, and ecology then, and others, that we will need much stronger social uh, regulation. And if you allow me to improvise a little bit, uh, this, I think, is a phenomenon which really interests me. You know that Virginia Woolf, you know her, I also really hate her. I think Daphne de Maurier, you know, the Vega is better than I Virginia Woolf is a frigid bitch for this But she said something beautiful. I don't know apropos which event, didn't she say like something like on the 4th of October 1910, I'm not sure about the date, human nature has changed, you know. And you maybe you know that there is a long tradition in England of these crazy days. Like, do you know that? And the beauty, only British people can do this, the beauty is that this was not meant as a joke. Do you know that a British theologist, Christian, in 19th century, 
I forgot, but calculated from the Bible backwards and said God created the world on, I think it's minus 4023 at 9 in the morning. <laughs> no, I know mean, God had a breakfast then, an English breakfast problem. <laughs> Why is this important for ideology? Uh -huh. I think people accuse me tonight that I lose my thread. I think. Because precisely concerning uh, uh, biology creation, I can offer you a wonderful example. I hope you know it. If don't, please read it. A wonderful example of how things which are scientifically obviously a nonsense can provide a wonderful formal structure which enlightens many things in how ideology works. For example, and this was elaborated among others by the biologist whom Laden first introduced him to me and we both love him, the one who died a couple of years ago, Stephen J. Gould, the great Darwinia. He has a wonderful article on theology and Darwinism. Maybe you know how this is for me the most intelligent, beautiful reaction of theology to Darwinism. There was a British theologist who was also a serious biologist, a friend of Darwin, and he knew, well, this is real. There are fossils and so on, so Darwin is right. But then he was also intensely religious, so he asked himself, how can we unite this, the obvious factual truth of Darwinism, with, and he was a religious fundamentalist at the same time, with the idea that, nonetheless, you know, again, if you count generations, the world universe should be old about four, maximum 5,000 years. It's ingenious. I hope you know the solution. It's really ideological mechanism at its purest. His idea was that, my God, Bible cannot be wrong, it's the work of God. So God really created the world 4,030 whatever years ago, but in order not to make the universe for us too claustrophobic, he directly created fossils, you know, like a movie set where it looks the infinite background but is just painted to make us feel more like open, that we live in an endless open universe. Now, I think that, okay, I'm not sure, probably this theory is wrong. <laughs> but it's a beautiful metaphor for ideology. How ideology means precisely how every epoch literally recreates its past. I don't know how this is done with you, but with my small nation, Slovenes, we are a clinical example. We have old medieval national customs, which were created all in the late 19th century, so that our <laughs> forefathers looked at the Tyrolean, Austrian, and this yodeling, each national dresses, and changed them a little bit. <laughs> okay, if you want to know more about this, Eric Hobsbawm, Eric Hobsbawm, the great British historian wrote, or rather edited, a nice collective volume, Invented Traditions. So, another example, since Mladen was yesterday talking about Object A, this entity which doesn't have 
positive existence, but it's just a positivization of nothing. The best example that I remember of this is from one of the books, again, one short essay, I don't know which one, uh, of, uh, again, Stephen Fagul, where to make a point about how uh, evolution functions, he uses as an example, you know them, for all European tastes we have better chocolates. I like to try them even here in Russia, but okay, I'm a diabetic, so I justify eating chocolate as saying that this is the homeopathic approach to diabetes, you know, that you cure the illness with the very poison and so on. <laughs> so seriously, he takes that disgusting American that I don't like cursed chocolate bars, and he discovered a certain tendency. Like, like, let's say at a certain point you have a certain price of chocolate and for this price you get certain quantity, like, I don't know, this one, the old prices, uh, 20 cents, 100 grams. Then he says that, uh, that if you compare quantity and price with inflation and so on, the value goes like this. For some time, price remains the same. You cannot change it all the time. But they gradually diminish the quantity. You know, so it's 95, 90, 85, I don't know how many grams. Then, at a certain point, they have to, they raise the price. And the quantity also goes up, but not to the uh, starting point. Like, it's not like, let's say, 100 grams, uh, let's say, uh, 50 cents. Then you have 50 cents, 80, 85, 70. Then you get, let's say, to 95 grams and 60 or 70 cents. But his point now is beautiful. He was spontaneously Lacanian. He said that if you bring this tendency to the end, you can not only precisely determine, of course, it's a senseless extrapolation, but beautiful, when you will get nothing, but here comes the Lacanian moment. You can exactly tell how much this nothing will cost. <laughs> this would be maybe the best metaphor for, you know, Lagenberg, yesterday in high theory, I give a concrete example, you know, in the Leninist sense of concrete analysis, concrete situations. So, okay, let me go back to ideology. So, you know, again, this idea we leave at the end of the theology and so on and so on. There is a confusion today because I'm going more back to ecology, no sorry, biogenetics. Why is this so important? Also for our ideological misunderstanding or misunderstanding. I mentioned Virginia Woolf. I think that in a way this effectively is happening today. Now I am neither this kind of a tech gnostic, technological gnosticism optimist, and I think this is what interests me in your tradition, your compatriot, Paris Kreuz. I have some problems, he will get a re-education camp when we take power, <laughs> but he did a good thing. He published with the German publisher, Zurkamp, three thick volumes of all those, you know, gnostic avant-garde texts from the 1920s. And he said, incredible how, you know, what he demonstrates is that 
it wasn't uh, just a minority, like some crazy people. This were hundreds of thousands of intellectuals, up to Trotsky. For example, he quotes, and I quote it in one of my books, a passage from Trotsky's text from 1924 or 25, when he still was writing and publishing here. And, well, he says that now that working class has political economic power, when the economic situation is stabilized, the next task will be to create a new man. And he didn't mean this Stalinist poetic bullshit. He really meant it. He said, through biology, psychology, we will have to genetically and so on, analyze what is a man and change it. Because he said, Homo sapiens was not well created by nature. We should literally genetically create a new man, and then he has Trotsky this wonderful ending, he says, so that then we Bolsheviks be able to say, farewell, homo sapiens, your time is past now, it's our Sorry? It's Nietzsche. Yeah, it's a problem here, because it's absolutely clear that for Nietzsche, this new man would nonetheless, I think, remain what Nietzsche calls the last man. At least this would be my, I'm not sure. Uh, you uh, maybe also need the re-evaluation character. So that's what's here. But uh, I mean, are you aware how many things are already happening? They are no longer uh, a utopia. For example, when I was in New York, I met some guys and then some who are already doing, you know what? Uh, we already can, through genetical analysis, computers, and so on, identify the most elementary signals that you give to your limbs when you walk. So what they did is they, in this way, attached a rat to a computer, and I saw the movie. I have four or five copies from the scientist laboratories, this one. Shocking. You see a rat freely jumping around. Then you have really like a remote controller for toys, for cars, you know. You press a button, the rat is connected, and then you can literally direct a living rat as if it's a car. Now, why is this so fascinating? You will say, so what? No big deal. Ah, they told me, and I suspect that this is what really interests them. Secretly, they are afraid to put this in public. They are, of course, trying to do this also on humans. And with that good, naive, but nonetheless good philosophical sense, they are bothered by, question, by the question which also immediately emerged in me when I listened to this. How would a human, or how will a human being experience Will it be, let's say you are the bad doctor, you look at me with this Dostoevsky crazy gaze. <laughs> will it be that when you control me, I will be free and then all of a sudden I will experience as if you know, oh my God, some foreign power is controlling me? Or will it be that I will think I'm still free? It's of course, yes, sir. No, okay, your sentence is diminished. You have no, seriously, that's quite. A lot of anxiety, you know. The first result, the hint that they need is that you don't even know that. You still think you are just freely 
uh, walking around. Or, for example, they are trying to sell us this as a great help towards crippled people, and for them it is. You know that with the same mechanism, like, if you are totally crippled, you no longer need what even Stephen Hawking said, you know, that finger. He communicates Stephen Hawking. No, uh, at least for elementary orders, they already have wheelchairs with motor for crippled people where you just think strongly, forward it moves. You think left, it goes left. Now you will say this is wonderful. We are uh, becoming like gods, literally. Because if you know Kant, this is what Kant called intellectuelle Anschauung, intellectual intuition. We humans, as finite, endless beings, we think reality is out there that we intuit. But Kant says only for God, thinking is creating. You know, like thinking is immediately also physical causality. Here we get almost a taste of that. But, as my friends told me, like, don't jump too quickly to intellectual orgasm, you know, because <laughs> they told me nicely, what goes out also goes in. That is to say, if you can influence in this way the outside, they can also go in. And I was shocked to learn how, I'm not blaming you here, Putin, bad secret services, they're all doing it, I was told, especially United States and China. They are like crazy. This will be maybe the next stage of warfare. You know, developing different techniques of literally biogenetic warfare. For example, spreading something around or into food which literally for some time changes you or whatever. And I claim this really is a change in human nature because our most elementary perception of inner of freedom is the freedom of thought. I mean, in this purely formal sense, you can beat me whatever, but I think what I want to think. It's the elementary distance between inside and outside. And my God, what will happen if this distance, no, okay, maybe not totally falls away, but is somehow now, I want to be clear here, I am neither the stupid optimist like those technognostics from the 20s, nor am I the stupid pessimist in some Adorno Heidegger way, oh, the end of humanity, the very humanness of human being will be obliterated. We should keep it open, I don't know enough, but what I do know is that it's effectively, as Virginia Woolf we would have put it something we it's a change in our most fundamental functioning as humans. And when I visited China the first time ten years ago, I was quite shocked how open the Chinese are about this. By chance I met because I met him before in Frankfurt at some debate about impact of technology. Uh, one of the heads of Chinese uh, Academy of Sciences Department for Biogenetics. And he showed me their, the program of their biogenetic department. And you know, with Chinese, you get it. No humanitarian bullshit directly, no. It says that the goal of the development of biogenetics in China is to regulate 
the physical and psychic well-being of the Chinese people. Haha, <laughs> they directly say no? So, uh, with all this, then brain sciences and so on, here things get really interesting. Namely, uh, if, and it's a big if, I, my answer is no here, but I don't have time to develop it, but if we accept, and the problem is that most of us nonetheless accept it, I don't, but not out of religious reasons, if we accept the fact that biogenetic description of us humans as just, let's say, neuronal mechanisms where uh, freedom is just, uh, as they call it, user's illusion and so on. Although here also, my God, you should follow this debate. You know who is Benjamin Libet, a scientist in at Berkeley, I think, San Francisco, who did the most interesting experiment in this. He, you, might, you didn't hear about this, it's wonderful, already 15 years ago. He uh, proved, demonstrated positively that, uh, let, let's say, he asked a person, as part of the experiment, to decide something like when I will pick up this pen or something like that quickly and to act immediately like now I decided. Okay. He demonstrated that part of a second before you are aware of your decision, your brain already knows it and sends the signal and so on. Now this seems to be an obvious proof that our free decision is not really a decision. That you just take cognizance, how do they put it, become aware of some objective neuronal process which already took place. But now things get complicated. Libet himself doesn't draw this conclusion. He claims, and it's a wonderful Hegelian he claims that we are looking for freedom at the wrong place that the primordial form of freedom is negative, not positive. Yes, whatever you positively decide, it's already in your body, blah, blah. But he claims you can sabotage it, block it. The, the zero level of freedom is that in that split of a second, you can say stop and sabotage the process. Now, I know that now again you can ask the question, but wait a minute, this negative sabotaging decision also has to have some numeral graph so the debate get, gets much more complex and so on. But, uh, okay, I will not get lost in this because uh, these are nonetheless wonderful debates. Most of neurobiologists, I claim, are philosophically idiots. <laughs> they think in this simplistic way, okay, but not all of them. Some of them ask very intelligent questions. So, let me go on. Where things become interesting is what Mladek was talking yesterday, subject in all of this. Let me, let's ask a question more radically. Which would have been the subjective awareness, how we look at ourselves, that would have been appropriate to this knowledge? No, like, can we live our daily lives 
why not just rationally, but somehow even emotionally, subjectively, fully accepting that we are just neuronal mechanisms and so on. It's very interesting because there are four main positions here. Three, four. One is the naive, sorry, the common sense one. It's by far predominant. The idea is that even if we rationally know that there is no free will and so on, we can, as the German, pretty intelligent uh, cognitivist, Thomas Metzinger, you should translate his book, Being No One, it's a wonderful book, uh, he claims that even if we rationally know this, we cannot really accept it and believe in it, that it's an impossible knowledge. In other words, you can rationally know, but you cannot get out of your automatic self-perception as a free and responsible agent. So this is a kind of a position of necessary eternal ideology, to put it very simply. Like, we can know it, but we cannot step out, no, sorry, we cannot nonetheless step out of our everyday illusions, where we understand ourselves as free beings and so on and so on. Then we have the second position, opposite, which is that of some radical uh, brain scientists, especially that California couple of the most crazy reductionists, Paul and Patricia Churchland. Their idea is, we can do it. And they tried to propose an ethics, which would be, they claim, much more understanding for our failures, not so terrorist, which would, like, try to do without subjective freedom, uh, uh, responsibility, and so on. Then we get a third position here, which is that of the last transcendental philosophers, like Habermas. They play here a typical transcendental trick, which I think doesn't work here. Their idea is this one. We as humans move, dwell, live in a world of pragmatic responsibility, reasoning, we pursue rational goals, following certain linguistic rules and so on, and certain norms, like something to be accepted, it must be rationally grounded and so on. And he claims that even if the result of our research of nature is there is no free will and so on and so on, you cannot really erase the fact that this insight emerged as part of a certain scientific procedure which in itself presupposes responsibility, reasoning and so on. In other words, the very result is possible only within the space of free reasoning and so on. I think it's a nice traditional philosophical argument, but it doesn't work. And then we have Metzinger's other theory. Why doesn't it work? Sorry? Why doesn't it work? Uh, because, no, 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 because I think because, because uh, you will have to read Hegel a little bit. <laughs> no, because Hegel would have shown me. Because, you know, uh, it's, uh, I mean, I'm already getting close, not enough time, but there is a great debate in these 
like the one who tries to strike, to strike uh, compromise course is the philosopher Wilfried Schellachs, who tries to bring the two together, because Habermas basically ends up in epistemological, ontological dualism. Ontologically, yes, we are animals, but this ontology remains rooted in certain epistemological, transcendental horizons. Now, uh, it doesn't work, I think, because a radical, a radical uh, 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 determinist will tell you, but wait a minute, through a detailed evolutionary account, I can deduce or explain the very way your rational procedure of argumentation uh, aroused. Or the other way around, you have this very naive problem. If you simply accept Habermas, then you should avoid ontological questions. You know in what sense? Like here, I think, can turn Mayasu, the great critic of transcendental point. Here, uh, as position, here I think he has a point where he says that, uh, uh, like, when you, I would simply ask Habermas, okay, do you believe that human, that Darwin is basically right? That humans develop out of nature? If yes, then you must somehow accept that our reasoning also developed out of nature. So, simply, if you are a materialist, you have to somehow, even if you say we cannot explain it, at least presuppose hypothetically, that somehow, even if it is inadmissible, even if it's not accessible to us, somehow ontology has priority over epistemology. In the, and it's typical how Habermas, when asked on this, he escapes into agnosticism. He says, no, we cannot step behind, but I know this is like a whole uh, gap in our knowledge, but I am agnostic here. I think Hegel has an answer, but it's another story, no? <laughs> okay, back to Metzinger. Metzinger does something which I think mostly is just fashion, but in a way he does it so beautifully that he might be... He claims that if you go to the end in Buddhist meditation, this radical Satori, Nirvana, however it's called, where, as you know, you reach the state of, that's one of the phrases, thoughts without thinker. That you still think, but you no longer experience yourself as a self who thinks. That with this radical, you know what they call anatma in Buddhism, reaching the position of no self, that there you reach a point, the only point, very rare, where in your subjective self-experience, as it were, you are at the level of brain sciences, you know. Okay, I don't accept it, to be very clear. Uh, why not? Because now if you allow me to go further a little bit, uh, okay, this would have been too much to go into it in detail. Why I also think that freedom can be saved. 
not in an idealist way, not because there is an immortal soul and so on and so on, but what interests me about the Buddhist position is the following thing, and now this concerns directly ideology. In our post-ideological times, when no one, here at least Metzinger was right, but in much more Marxist and cynical sense than he thought. Uh, namely, I was shocked to discover that, you know that in the United States, I read in one of these stupid magazines, Forbes or whatever business, uh, what is the predominating spiritual orientation, if I may use this horrible word, of big managers and so on, people like Steve Jobs, uh, Bill Gates, uh, uh, Buddhism, strictly, or some kind of oriental meditation. And uh, uh, here my problems begin, not against Buddhism, much more. Uh, you know what was so difficult for me to accept? And this is for me a sad lesson, but a true materialist has to accept it, I claim. That uh, there is an intelligent, really bright Buddhist admits, I've spoken with them. Namely, uh, our automatic presupposition is that inner enlightenment, reaching the last stage of whatever spiritual mystical experience, is somehow on the same side as morality. You know, but I think there is a gap. Or to put it in brutal terms, you can be an absolutely authentic mystic really there in the enlightenment and you can still be a torturer, a murderer, whatever you want. You know, uh, who is my proof here? Is he still translated here in United States is Illis, the hero of the 60s, of the hippie movement, the propagator of Zen there, Suzuki. That's as the tarot together. But you know what is not so well known about Suzuki is that uh, 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 in the late 30s and early 1940s, he was a great uh, uh, propagator of Japanese militarism. And he did something very interesting. He said, I'm so evil. I'm like a good democratic Kagebe agent who looks all in his book, you know, to have it. No. Uh, not only did he, with all, and that's the tragedy, he didn't just support Japanese militarism as a citizen, but grounded in Buddhist thought. For example, when Japan attacked China, mid-30s, I think, and then uh, Chinese resisted, Suzuki wrote something like, the Chinese don't get it that the sword which is killing them is really the sword of love, or all that stuff. And you know how Buddhists use the term of compassion, compassion for all living beings, no? And then, uh, uh, Suzuki proposed the notion of uh, compassionate killing and so on and so on and so on. But even nicer, I think I developed this briefly already in Moscow and I think so much I want to repeat it. She even, isn't this horrible, gives a Buddhist advice to military of why Buddhist meditation is good for war. He says that, you are my enemy, let's say you are my enemy, we are on the battlefield, I have to kill you with my knife. Okay. 
Uh, if I remain caught within the illusion of false substantial reality, I will have problems killing you. Because you know, I will experience myself as a responsible agent. Like, but, and it's a beautiful, I quote it in my book's description, but, says Suzuki, if you go through this Buddhist position of overcoming your false self, then, and I would love to do this with you, then uh, the whole situation appears totally different. It's no longer me killing you. It is, there is this crazy impersonal dance of phenomena. My knife dances and somehow this cosmic dance, your body or I, falls on my knife. And I'm just a pure observer. You know what I find here? So horrible. Not Buddhism. My, now let's avoid the misunderstanding. My point is not uh, Buddhism, it is just really military propaganda. No, it's absolutely authentic. But we have to, isn't it that something horrible in this? That we have to accept this gap. It's, for example, I have many examples of this same gap, like, you know, who was Heinrich Heydrich, the one who organized Holocaust. Do you know that in the Olympics, he often gathered with his SS officer friends and they were playing what is maybe one of the most beautiful cases of Western classical music, late Beethoven's string quartets. And I, it always did strike me, my God, how could such a horror do it? But I think it's too easy to say, no, no, it must have been false, they just pretended. What if they did not pretend? What if they were really able to, you know, to fully enjoy it? This is why I appreciate Lenin. In what sense? Do you remember that old ridiculous story, often quoted by enemies even, as the result of Lenin's paranoia, when Lenin visited a friend when he was still before revolution, heard how somebody in the apartment played, I think it was Beethoven's Apassionata, and then Lenin almost cried, liked it, but then got agitated, claiming, my God, I shouldn't listen to this too much, I will become too gentle, and instead of beating the enemies, I will start to uh, uh, caress them. But I think this is honest and great, because at least Lenin, when people say this is Lenin's fault, no, this is beautiful. You know why? Lenin at least experienced the contradiction. The true horror for me is the someone who tortures you while, while listening to Passionata, to Appassionata. You know what I mean? I like this aspect of Lenin. He was aware of it. Okay, so uh, uh, I'm so sad because this is almost the predominant form of ideology today that we don't have more time to go into this, into... Feel free. Sorry? <laughs> you, are free. you are talking to a madman. If you say feel free, you will get free the last question. No, seriously. Because... Uh, no, I have to stop. And let's go off. All I wanted to tell you is, uh, is uh, that there are effectively good reasons imminent for considering some kind of a oriental Buddhist spirituality as the ideal ideological forum for 
today's global situation, because on the one hand, it fits perfectly, as Metzinger claims, this, the latest, at least officially recognized, scientific result, end of man, we are just mechanisms. At the same time, uh, do you know that uh, many businessmen, or those who school managers, have quite a rational, maybe it's even true, explanation of why Buddhist ontology is the best for today's capitalism. They claim that today's capitalism, especially in its most developed aspect, you know, like all these speculations on futures on future, is so penetrated with virtuality, you know, like somebody invests something there, all economy of a whole country falls apart like this. You get literal sense of the utter, let's call it, fragility of existence, you know. And they claim that uh, Buddhism can render this. This is Buddhist ontology, you know, all the time aware of how there is no substantial reality, everything is fragile, and so on and so on. Uh, which, and also I got another nice explanation for Muran, who told me that today's capitalist rhythm is so crazy that if you fully identify with it, you go crazy. So what you need is some kind of a reflective distance, you know, the only way to survive is to say, no, don't take the game too seriously, this is just a game of appearances, my true self is just the void when I withdraw from it. Which is why I'm so evil that whenever I see uh, some propaganda for transcendental meditation, did you notice, at least, I don't know if it's here also, how it's always two-level propaganda. First they tell you, we live in a crazy world, we are alienated, we care only about things, profit, you should discover that your true wealth is within you, withdraw. But I discovered that always this is the first part. Then the second part is always, and in this way you will be even more successful on the market. <laughs> and so on. No, no, I'm not blaming Buddhism here. I'm saying that it tells us a lot why this type of uh, attitude of, as they say in a vulgar way in uh, Star Wars, you know, the origin of evil is to get too attached to things. Keep a distance, don't become too attached. Here I am still Western Christian. No, I'm totally atheist, don't be afraid, but Christian in the sense of I like to be over attached to things. I like precisely to fall into it. What I like is precisely love, the theory, the politics, but to say no, I mean precisely totally fall, like as already improvised in Moscow. I don't want just to be in love, I want to fall in love. You know, precisely in this sense of you fall into it. All the coordinates of your life are disturbed and so on. And what is happening today with all this easy sex or sex through uh, uh, dating agencies is precisely that nobody wants the fall. Again, maybe you know the story, Alain, but you drew my attention to this house. And I found some other, many publicities for dating agencies where they say, 
it works in French and English, I'm not sure it works in Russian, in Slovene it doesn't, where the expression is the verb fall, to fall, tombe, in love. And they repeat regularly this joke. They say, we will enable you to be in love without the fall. <laughs> That's correct for me, if you ask me. That's what I don't want. Which is why, incidentally, my stylist almost dream with billions of dollars would be to remake Star Wars, but with Darth Vader and Emperor as the good guys. That they are this progressive centralizer who wants kind of a slightly authoritarian. Who's give you billions of dollars? Yeah, yeah, people's democracy, and all those Jedi are reactionary feudals who resist people. Okay, let's go nonetheless seriously on. Now, let's go a step forward. Why does then Buddhism, in this case, function as ideology? I will now become next point of theory. Uh, I developed this in some of my books, but in a confused way, I will try now to make a shorter resume. I think what is crucial is that today, this is my general theory, I don't have time to develop it in detail, uh, ideology functions less and less in a symptomatic way and more and more in a fetishist way. It was you who mentioned fetish yesterday, yes. Here I agree with you, but in what sense? What is a symptom? What is a fetish? Symptom is, let's say, a moment of truth within the field of a lie. You know, like, uh, you live a lie, your universe is structured as a lie, but then, of course, truth returns here and there, disturbs it. You know, a ridiculous example would have been, let's say you are, or I am, but I'm unfortunately not, an adolescent, traumatized by sex. And then I try to escape into, as far as possible, let's say into physics, mathematics. But you know, whatever I do there, somehow it returns. Like I say, oh, I am free from sex, then my God, I get a task. How much energy is released when two bodies hit each other, you know? And I'm there, you know, like, you know, this idea of you cannot totally lie, it has to return. So it's, again, the moment of truth within the field of a life. This would also have been, that's why it's symptomatic, you know, the Freudian symptom. You live a lie, truth returns, or as Freud would have put it, symptom as the return of the repressed. Fetish is something much more interesting, I claim. <laughs> Fetish is almost, not quite, the opposite. Fetish is a small lie which enables us to live in truth. Not truth in any authentic sense, but truth in the sense of accepting realistically the situation the way it is. What do I mean by this? Fetishists are not idiots, as we often think. You know, people who think just about the food or whatever. No, no. They are realists. Why? Because they have a fetish to endure it. Now, I will give you an example. Uh, didn't they mention it also yesterday in the film, Hamster? Wasn't there talk of Hamster? Oh, yeah. yeah. Hamster is my great example. Namely, a totally ridiculous story happened to a friend of mine some years ago in Slovenia. It's the usual sad story. He was married to a beautiful woman, blah, 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 then, you know, the usual 
story. Woman goes to a doctor up breast cancer. In two, three months, she was dead. Okay. Then something strange happened, or precisely, to put it in Sherlock Holmes terms, nothing strange happened, and that was the strange thing, you know. <laughs> in the sense that this friend of ours, you know, after the wife died, we didn't have to walk around him silently. Oh, don't mention the wife, it's too traumatic. He also didn't do it like the symptom reaction would have been for him to escape into some, like, I don't know, to go for a mission to Africa, become a humanitarian, this, that, but you know, no matter how far away you run, the trauma will catch with you. No, he did the exact opposite. He was ready to talk with us all the time, no, not all the time, but often, about most painful moments of his wife dying and so on. We were quite shocked. You know, like, calmly, you know, he would, all the details. And then we asked ourselves at the meeting, did he love her at all? How can he? And then, okay, so ridiculous. We noticed that every time when he was talking about his wife, he was playing with a hamster. Hamster was his fetish. It was, it stood because it was the favorite pet of his wife. It is as if, Sticking to hamster enabled him to, you know, Freud has this beautiful term, isolere, isolere, or neutralisere. How? When somebody tells you, for example, your wife or child favorite died. You know, often you rationally accept it, but in your symbolic universe of meaning, or the wrong traditional word, emotionally, you really don't accept it. You know, you accept it as a rational fact, but not subjectively. This is, I think, here the function of fetish. He, you know, fetish embodied the denial of, okay, castration, in this case, uh, the death of the wife, so that he was able rationally to talk about it, but blocking all, let's call them naively, emotional subjective consequences. Now you will say, how do I know this? This is your stupid, primitive psychoanalysis. Ah, after a year, and you know that hamsters don't live a long time, no? After a year, the hamster died. And the guy immediately had a breakdown and tried serial suicides, had to be hospitalized, and so on and so on. So my lesson from this is precisely, you got it probably the following one. When somebody claims, I'm a brutal realist, I don't care, I know, life is just business, power, sex, I don't, you know, this cynical position. It's an impossible position. To put it in poetic terms, they all have a hamster. The beginning of critique of ideology here is, okay, you are brutal, but where is your hamster, you know? <laughs> and I think that, like, uh, Western Buddhism is one big fat hamster. <laughs> you know, like, they participate wholly in cruel reality, but it's like hamster, you know, they can tell to themselves, but it's just a game, I'm not really there, my true self is elsewhere, and so on and so on. You see, this is the, this is the minimum function of, of ideology here, you know. Precisely, again, appearing as just the beauty, as post-ideology. It's because, you know, it's precisely the distance from. 
And this is what always interested me. And here I would like to have more time, life is shit, I don't have, to learn more from you, not because you are a specially perverted nation, each nation is in its own way specially perverted, but how this functions with you. Namely, it's my own theory based on my experience in ex-Yugoslavia, but I think this was a universal fact, just there in a plastic way I experienced it. How? And that's the lesson of this. Uh, I have another example. I think I quoted it, but I'm not sure somewhere. The most beautiful of Hamster, logic of fetish. You know who is maybe the absolute writer of detective stories for me in the 20th century? Patricia 